Uh, well, welcome to chapel, everyone. Um, we're going to be continuing in a sermon series that I started the last time I was up here. And uh, anyone remember what it was? Thank you, Tiffany. One person remembers. The sermon series was on discovering your purpose. And we're looking at the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis to kind of get our minds around this idea. What does it mean to discover our purpose? Right? What does it mean to live into all that God has created and called us to be? And so last time, what we really talked about was the development of a dream. All right? And we said that Joseph's story really starts with a coat of many colors, that it was a sign of God's love and that his identity starts there. His identity is not found in what he does or what he produces or how he functions as a son, but it's just the fact that he is a son. He has this beautiful coat, and it's a symbol of his love. And and what we see as we continue in his story is that he has this crazy dream, and it's a dream where all of his, essentially, metaphorically, his brothers and his family members all bow down to him. And and, and I shared a story with you where my mom kind of, you know, I have these, like, fortune fortune cookie moments, not fortune teller moments, um, where my mom gives me these little things. And she said, JD, be a big bowl, not a small bowl. And I was like, I'm a small Asian man. I don't even know what that means. And it meant have a big dream, right? Make yourself so large, create a capacity that God can fill you and work in and through you. And then we continued and said that it's good to have a big dream, but what we don't realize many times is that our dreams lead to places of death, right? Joseph gets killed. He gets thrown into this pit, um, but as many of you talked to me after the last time I preached, you were like, guys, JD, like, Joseph doesn't die. He, like, continues. And the answer is, yes, you're right. <laughs> he does not die, right? But it leads him to a place of death. And actually, from that point on, his family, his father, thinks he's dead, okay? And the only reason that Joseph doesn't die is because grace shows up in the story, Right? There's this brother of his named Judah who kind of is like the ancestor of a guy named Jesus. Coincidence? I don't think so. But he says, hey, we shouldn't kill him. We should sell him instead because we'll make money, which Jesus wouldn't do. But, you know, you get the point. But grace shows up, and his life is now saved. And he's sold as a slave to the Ishlamites for 20 pieces of silver. Right? Back in that time, in ancient times, slaves were sold for 30 pieces. His brothers didn't even think that he was worth that. And his father thinks he's dead. And so we're going to continue in the narrative of Joseph's life. But, but before we go on, we need to kind of address a pers- perspective issue first, okay? Um, how many of you guys are like fans of The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings? Okay, awesome. Greg, Whitney, standing. Thank you. Yes. I know you have multiple capes to show your love. Yeah. Um, I can't tell if you're an elf or a hobbit or a dwarf, but anyways, that's another conversation. Um, okay, how many of you guys have actually read the books? Okay, awesome. A lot of people. All right, there is, when people look at The Hobbit and they look at The Lord of the Rings, they think that they're very similar stories, right? You've got these characters, you've got, like, things happening, you know. But the truth is, they're, they're kind of a bit different. And there's actually, I would say, a lot of differences, but there's one very, very significant difference. Now, they're both journeys, okay? I'll give you that. But there's a fundamental difference between the journey that you see in The Hobbit and the journey that you see in The Lord of the Rings. Does anyone know what that fundamental difference is? Okay, does anyone know, J.R. Tolkien had a title for The Hobbit. It was called The Hobbit or There and Back Again. Yes. Okay, so The Hobbit is a story where you go there and you come back again. And that's what we see. All right? It's a journey, but it's a journey to which there's a return. All right? But The Lord of the Rings is not like that. It's a quest. 
And the difference is that in a quest, when you go on a quest, there is no coming back. Your life is forever different, okay? And when you follow the characters, when you follow Frodo and Sam as they go throughout the narrative of the Lord of the Rings, their lives are never the same. There is no coming back to who they were. Now, the reason why I say that we need a perspective change is when we talk about discovering our purpose and living into the will of God, many of us think that it's kind of like The Hobbit, when it's actually more like The Lord of the Rings. What I mean by that is we think, oh, you know what? I can go and check something out and then come back and still maintain a part of my self-identity. I can go and do this for a little bit or maybe do this major or maybe I'll explore this, but I can always come back, right? There's this there and back again nature. But what God shows us in Scripture and what he wants to do with your life is to take you on a quest, a journey where he's wanting to transform every part of who you are to where there is no coming back to where you were before. The difference is huge because on one perspective, if you go there and back again, there's kind of like some choice in the fact that there's a, there's a bit of safety. There's a bit of knowing. There's a bit of security that you're going to return. But if you think I'm on this quest and I don't even know where I'm going and I don't even understand where I'm at and somehow God is in this, it's a whole different way of looking at discovering your purpose. And when we look at Joseph's life, we see that it's more like a quest. From the moment that he is sold into slavery which is in Genesis 37 to the end of his story in Genesis 50. That's 13 chapters. It's a journey that is filled with many twists and turns, but he is radically transformed from the person he was to the person who he becomes because of God's work in his life. You see, God will not only give you a dream, but he will prepare you to be the person who can actually live out that dream. And so many of us, we want the dream. We love the dream, but we don't want to go through what it takes to become that person who can actually live out that dream. And that's exactly the same thing that we see in Joseph's life. And so we're going to look at three situations this morning in his life. Okay, I'm preaching through like three chapters of scripture. So we're, I'm going to paraphrase things. We're just going to go through all three chapters. But we're going to look at three situations over Joseph's journey, his quest, in which God shows up and forms his character without him even knowing. And the three situations that we're going to look at, okay, are, are this. One, when he faces moments of temptation. Secondly, when his circumstances are different from what he dreamed or imagined. And lastly, when he feels forgotten and abandoned. Okay? So, when he faces moments of temptation, when his circumstances are different, and when he feels forgotten. All right. So, let's talk about what does Joseph do on his journey, on his quest, when he faces moments of temptation. And this is like the entirety of Genesis 39, if you want to kind of read it or go over it. But basically, this is what happens. Joseph is brought to Egypt as a slave, and he's sold into Potiphar's house, okay? And we have to stop there, because we have to say, okay, well, who's this Potiphar guy, right? Was he a potter? Did he make pots? The answer is no, he did not make pots. He was an official in the Egyptian court, a very, very high official. He was actually the captain of the guard, okay? And so he was, he was like the captain of the people who protected the pharaoh. That's like pretty high position, right? You got to be an incredible warrior. You got to have experience. You got to have leadership skills, That was Potiphar. He was very, very respected. Now, Potiphar bought Joseph and allowed him to kind of work in his home as a slave, as a servant. But he saw that God was with him. And he gives Joseph control over all the things in his house. He literally gives him authority to oversee everything. And there is no one who has more power than Joseph in his house except for himself. Okay? And so that's Potiphar. That's who he is. Now, Potiphar has a wife. Now, this is when the Bible gets juicy. Okay? 
And yeah, you're like, what? The Bible juicy? Isn't that boring? No, the answer is no. It's very exciting. And the reason why is Potiphar's wife. Okay, there's a couple of things. We don't know her age, all right? We don't know how old she is. Some people think when they imagine the story, like if you're imagining the Sunday school version, that it's like, yeah, Potiphar's wife, she must have been this like old lady, you know, like a rich old like, oh, hello, Joseph, give me some tea or whatever Egyptians drink. That could have been the case, but it could also be that she may have been some kind of trophy wife because he was such a high official. And if that was the case, she would have probably been a bit younger than Potiphar, maybe closer to Joseph's age. Or she could have been the same age as Potiphar, which is middle age for his position. But because he was such a high official, it's not like he would just marry somebody uh, who, who wasn't equal, right? If you're the captain of the guard, you would want someone to be like, whoa, who is that? And that's like, yeah, that's my wife. Like, that's, mm-hmm. Right? So what we know about Potiphar's wife, and we don't talk about this much, is that even though we don't know her, her, her age or we don't know kind of many details about her, we can assume and, and, and correctly postulate that she's part of that 1% elite in Egyptian culture. So she was probably beautiful, lovely, right, charming, right, the kind of woman that makes men jealous or maybe captivates a room or makes you look twice. Or if we translated it, shoddy is a dime, Ten pieces. For those of you guys who are like, I don't even understand what he said. Ten, okay? Makes sense. She's beautiful. So listen, you have Potiphar who's captain of the guard. You have Potiphar's wife who's beautiful. And then you have Joseph, right? And in Genesis 39, 6, it says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, okay? Now again, when we read the Bible, we put on these PG glasses. But don't think PG. You guys watch TV shows that aren't even PG, Okay? It says that Joseph was hot. Okay, he was a stud. All right? Sisters, ladies, that means that he was not like the guys here at ENC who are kind of a little soft around the edges. You know what I mean? You understand? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot you guys are still here. Just kidding. Just kidding. All right? So imagine like, yeah, see, I knew it. I knew it. So imagine like an ancient version of like Channing Tatum, Okay? Or whoever your, like, Ryan Reynolds or whoever your hot guy is. Like, that's what Joseph is, okay? So you have Potiphar, you have Potiphar's wife, and you have, like, ancient Channing Tatum. And what ends up happening in this story is crazy, right? Potiphar's wife starts noticing Joseph. Now, you might be like, oh, that's pretty common. But actually, in ancient Egyptian marriage culture, it was very uncommon. They were actually very monogamous. And a lot of their, if you look at Egyptian poetry, a lot of their marriages were based in deep love, right? So they were very loyal. And so... Joseph must have been like one really good-looking guy, or there must have been something for Potiphar's wife to start noticing, but she notices him, and she starts seducing him, all right? Come and lie with me, Joseph. Come and lie with me. And now again, take off your PG glasses and, and think of those shows that you watch where people are trying to seduce them, right? It's not like this, come and lie with me, cat call. I mean, who knows? She could have been sprawled out. She could have been wearing something pretty, pretty provocative or... Maybe nothing, right? But she's trying to like come in. Hey, this isn't the Bible. I'm just calling it like it is, okay? I told you guys we were going to go here last time I preached. But she's saying, come and lie with me. Come and lie with me. And what we see, right, she, maybe she's clothed. Maybe she's not. But she's definitely seducing him. She's maybe with her perfume and she has all this like jewelry. And she's like, come on, come and lie with me. You know you want me. And in the midst of this great temptation, what does Joseph do? 
okay? He says in verse 8, now this is kind of funny, right? Behold, Joseph says, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put me in charge of everything. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you're his wife. So how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He says, no. No, I'm not going to sleep with you. Even if she's beautiful, even if she's stunning, even if she's seducing him, not like the cat call, but like, you know. No. And the scripture says that day after day she did this. And every single time he said no. You see, in the moment of great temptation, Joseph lives by great conviction. He refuses to sin against another person. And more importantly, he refuses to sin against God. And if the story isn't juicy enough, it gets even more exciting or scandalous. Right, one day when he's working and no one's in the house, right, Potiphar's wife just grabs him. The NIV says he grabs him by his cloak. But some scholars say it was actually probably more like his under tunic or maybe even his shorts, right? Like his, you know. So she was like ripping off his clothes. Let's go. And Joseph, you know what he does? He runs out the room and he leaves his garment in there. He's just like butt naked maybe, right? And he's just like, I'm out. (laughs) Forget it. I'm going to live by this convection. He's out. Now, let's be honest. How many of us could actually do that? Live by conviction in your moments of temptation. Right? I think if we're being honest, the sad truth is not many of us. We live in a culture of immediate gratification. Right? You get what you want. You get it right now. There's no concept of waiting. And everything is instant. Right? Amazon Prime has changed my life. I feel like it's Christmas every two days when I order something. <laughs> Everything comes so quickly to me. And the idea of waiting seems antiquated. And when you listen to music and you watch movies and you look at culture, no one says you should wait until you're married, until you have sex. No one says that. I read this interesting article uh, in Rolling Stone, and it was about how millennials view sexuality. And they were interviewed people from all across the country, okay? And it was very fascinating because they were looking at millennials who are like older. You know, I'm actually, I was born in 83, so I, I'm considered millennial. I'm part of all of you. Um, and so they were looking at those couples who have like open marriages and new definitions of monogamy, you know, and things like that. But they're also looking at the hookup, college, hookup culture of college students. And in this one study, they interviewed 1,800 young people from colleges all across the country, okay? Just everywhere. 1,800. And they found that 59.3% of respondents said that they had sex weekly or more. 59%. That's like more than every other person in this room. What's crazy is that that number is actually less than where it was historically. In a previous era, right? I mean, you imagine the 70s and, you know, okay. 65.2% is what it was. So it's interesting, right? Because college students all across the country are now having less sex, but the trend now is that sex is more casual. Hooking up with random people or multiple partners is like the way to go, right? Netflix and chill. One girl said she was like a vulture. She had like 29 people that she had slept with. Crazy. I know. I'm not going to say which school she was from, but not judging her. She needs Jesus. Jesus loves her. But the irony is that she slept with 29 people and she considered none of them as a significant person in her life. No one was a boyfriend. She said, "Uh, yeah, we like talk, but I wouldn't say that they were like a significant person. Somehow, 
in our culture, we have separated our sexuality from our spirituality. Now, I'm going to tell you something that they don't tell you in Sunday school. Okay, if you grew up in the church, I promise you no one ever told you this. In the Bible, there is no such thing as premarital sin. It's never mentioned. Or premarital sex. It's never mentioned. All right? Not in the Old Testament or in the New Testament does it ever say, thou shalt not have sex before marriage. It really doesn't exist. And if you're like, it exists, my answer to you is no, actually, it, it doesn't. There's nowhere where someone says that, that that's what God wants. Now, before you think that I'm approving of this Rolling Stones article and hookup culture, <laughs> the reason why it doesn't exist is actually quite simple. It doesn't exist in the Bible because the idea of premarital sex itself, it was something that was so inconceivable to the people of ancient times. You see, back in those days, they looked at their bodies and their spirits connected as one. And so when you went and you married someone, and you could do the public vows and stuff, but it wasn't until that marriage was consummated that there was a spiritual covenant that was made. And so what you did in your body mattered because it was a reflection and it, and it was a, an extension of your spirit. This is why the Bible uses language like two becoming one. And some historians and theologians and scholars have even said that the mystical union in the act of sex, right, intercourse, I just said that word in chapel, yes, is a symbol of the unity that God, God experiences within himself in the Trinity, something that's beautiful and profound. In the garden, it was good and whole. And in Old Testament times, premarital sex didn't exist because the idea was if you slept with someone, you were married to them, okay? They didn't even need to talk about it. Now, I know some of you are going to say, well, Paul says in Galatians 5 that, you know, the fruit of the flesh and the spirit and they're different and the flesh is against the spirit. But, but we need to, I think we need to really consider what Paul is trying to do there, right? He's ministering to Greeks, right, who understood the teachings of people like Aristotle and Plato. And if you read them, they say that the flesh is evil and that the spirit is good. There's a separation there. And I think Paul was trying to contextualize his message because Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6, right, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't separate it. He's a Jew. He understands that there is no separation between flesh and spirit. So what you do in your flesh with your body affects your spirit. And what you do in your spirit affects your body. See, when you have sex with someone, you're spiritually connected to them in a covenantal way. And so premarital sex in the Bible, thou shalt not have that, does not exist because it was completely inconceivable. This is why when Jesus is talking to the woman and she's like, you know, oh, give me your living water. He's like, go find your five husbands. Did she have five weddings? Did she even have the dowry for that? No, she most likely slept with five people. Our spirituality and our sexuality our spirits, our bodies and our spirits, they're, they're connected, right? And, and somehow, our generation, we've separated that. And what we have is people who are going around trying to fill this spiritual hole that exists that they don't even know how to fill. But they're trying to do it by giving their souls away, feeling more empty after experience, after experience, after experience. You see, some of you might think that Joseph was a coward, right? Man, he was, a, he was brother was like, he was weak, man. He had a great opportunity, literally presented right there. But I believe it takes more courage to live with conviction than to fall away to temptation. Look, guys, brothers, men, it takes more courage to not see women as objects for pleasure. 
whether that's like through the objectification you see in pornography or through the relationship you have with them, right? It takes more courage to value her for more than just what you can get or for her body. But to see beyond that, to see that she's a daughter of God, that there's something sacred within her, that God is calling you to come and know. Women, sisters, it takes more courage to say no, right? To find deeper value in who you are, to trust that you are a daughter of God, and to not let your worth be connected to just a relationship. Look, if he doesn't value you enough to respect you, then you don't need him in your life. We could talk about this all day, but we got to go to the rest of the sermon. But the point is this, is that on your journey, you're definitely going to face moments of temptation. For some of you, it's like this weekend, Valentine's Day weekend. Yeah, don't, don't, say, don't get excited. I'm preaching to y'all. Uh, you're going to face moments of great temptation on your journey, on your quest. My challenge to you, and I think what the scripture informs us, is that in those moments, we need to leave with great conviction. To have the courage to find our worth and to walk away, even if it means leaving something behind. Maybe that garment's a relationship. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's something but it's better to live by conviction than to give way to temptation. And so we see that in moments of temptation, Joseph lives with conviction, okay? That was the first thing. The second thing is, what do you do when the circumstances you find yourself in are very different from what you dreamed or imagined? Well, living by this great conviction uh, landed Joseph in some trouble, okay? Because Potiphar's wife, she now has like his garment, which could be his underwear or like his outer cloak. And she, you know, Potiphar comes home and she's like vengeful, Okay? And let's be honest, the wrath of a woman is a very scary thing, you know? And I said that honestly, my wife is here, and I respect her, you know what I'm saying? But she goes, Potiphar, Joseph tried to rape me. Rick, look, he left his clothes. He ran out because he was scared, and I had to push him off, and, like, I got, it was just kind of. And what's crazy is Potiphar, it's interesting. He places him into this, like, the royal prison, the king's prison, which almost makes you think maybe he didn't believe his wife, but he had to honor that, right? So Joseph finds himself in jail. He finds himself in prison. He finds himself in a circumstance that is totally different from what he expected or anticipated. And I think in that place, Joseph learned something that I learned one night at like 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, I've shared maybe a bit some parts of my story, but I, I had a crazy, crazy, difficult life. Not difficult as some people or some of you um, but difficult for, like, what I went through. And there was a period from, like, my freshman year of college to, like, 10 years after that I was just, like, in a very dark place, okay? St. John of the Cross would call, like, a dark night of the soul. And I was uh, depressed without even knowing it and just, like, bleeding all over people and just, it was just bad, okay? Um, one night, right, along this journey, maybe like six or seven years in, I was starting to heal in some ways, and I was reading this book, okay? It's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, okay? The most cheesiest title ever. But I was reading this book, and um, God was starting to reveal some truth to me just through these different books that I was reading. And it was like two in the morning, okay? And I'm in my bed clothes, because you guys know about that. We talked about it already. And I'm in my bed, okay? And, and, we, and my wife is sleeping. It's dark. I have a little book light, and I'm just, I'm just reading, and I'm reading this section, and this guy is talking about all the things that happen in our life, right? All the troubles and hardships and pains and difficulties we experience. And he's talking about this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I feel you. I've gone through a lot. You know, I'm in a dark place. Like, I can resonate with that. And then all of a sudden, there's this line, and the line says, all of it is your fault, period. 
And I, I paused for a second, you know. So this is total silence, two in the morning, bed clothes in bed, wife sleeping. And I was like, you know what I mean? Like, kind of like saying words I shouldn't say silently, though, so I didn't say them, but I kind of said them. Freaking out. How is what happened in my life my fault? Right? How is it that I was born in a family where there was this guy, my biological father, who I've never known? He was abusive. He cheated on my mom so many times. He tried to kill her one time, and I remember that as a baby. How is that my fault? Right? How is it my fault that just because I was half Filipino, I was bullied in Korea every day? Every day. Like, they would do this thing where they would twist my elbow and, like, pop it out of the socket. So I'm like, I have weird elbows. I, I kinda, they're inverted. Because it would come out. And, and this is so stereotypical, but my mom made me go learn martial arts like a good Asian boy. And then I was going to defend myself. <laughs> right? But how is that my fault that I was bullied? That's not my fault. Right? How is it my fault that, that, that after having an incredible life, some of you guys have heard this, right? My stepdad adopted me for 20 years. My parents were married. They adopted five other kids. We had this incredible Christian home. And then he chooses to have an affair, and my family gets splintered apart. My first year of seminary. How is that my fault? So I'm sitting there at 2 a.m. just freaking out, right? I don't want to get out of my bed because then my bed clothes are contaminated. I don't want to wake up my wife. I'm just freaking out. And so I did the only thing that you could really do at 2 in the morning in that circumstance, which is just continue reading, okay? And as I continue to read, this person said, the reason why it's your fault is because you may not be able to control the things that happen to you, but you can always control your response. And that blew my mind. I realized, right, that ultimately he was right. It's funny. Joseph finds himself in a prison, and he can't control that. He's been sold by his brothers. He's, like, for dead. He's been falsely accused, silent sufferer. He's, like, in this jail. He's not, he, could, he could be like, God, why? God, woe is me. God, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to be angry. I don't like no one because no one likes me. But you know what he does? He chooses to continue to live on. And he chooses to be present. It's unbelievable. What we find at the beginning is that in that jail, Joseph earns the respect of everybody. And, and the jailer gives the same authority that he had in Potiphar's house over, over, the, over, over the jail to Joseph. So Joseph is now like the second in command in jail. Life continued. The language is the same there because it's saying that there was no change in his behavior. He chose to live on. He chose to be present. And he was present enough to pay attention to say, God, even though I don't understand, maybe you're working in this somehow. Right, there was a dispute, right? Because there was a cupbearer that comes in and a baker who comes in, and they both had these dreams, and they were like trying to figure out what the dreams meant. Joseph was present enough to go to them and interpret this dream for them. When he did that, he didn't say, hey, guys, I had a dream too, and my dream is that I'm going to be the ruler. I'm going to be the best. But I'm in jail. I know it doesn't make sense, but one day I'm going to be great. He didn't do that. He helped them where they were. How many of you have ever, maybe, maybe you haven't, but I know I have. I've been in situations, right, where I'm like, Lord, I know you have a plan for me, but where I'm at right now makes no sense. How are you working through this? Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a failed relationship. Maybe it's a school. Maybe it's a class. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a church. Or maybe it's your family. And we say there is no hope. And somehow, instead of being present and aware and allowing God to work in and through it, instead of saying, Lord, are you working? Are you here? We step back. We find that Joseph chooses not to be a victim of circumstance. 
that when he finds himself in a circumstance that's different from what he imagined, he chooses to be present. And in doing so, he serves those around him. He loves them. And this leads us to our third point. What do you do in moments where you feel forgotten? So this cupbearer, right, interprets his dream, and basically what ends up happening, short version, is a baker, guy, baker dies, cupbearer, you know, lives. Major spoiler, sorry. The cupbearer goes back into the royal court, and Joseph says, hey, dude, I'm in prison. Just remember me when you're there, okay? Like, I just helped you out, so remember me. And scripture says that two years passes, and this cupbearer completely forgets. Of course, he forgets the guy who actually helped him get out. And it isn't until Pharaoh has a dream, which no one in the kingdom of Egypt can solve, okay? All the magicians and soothsayers and whoever, no one can solve it. Their wise people can't solve it. And Pharaoh is like, I have a dream. And the cupbearer, as he's serving the cup, is like, oh, Pharaoh, my bad. Two years ago, there was this guy in prison that helped me interpret a dream. And that's why I'm alive, but the baker is dead. And Pharaoh's like, oh, okay. And what's unbelievable is that Joseph is taken out of prison. He has changed clothes and he's brought before Pharaoh, okay? And, and, and scholars date this, like, period of Joseph's life where he went from Potiphar's house to jail to all this stuff, you know, the slavery, maybe to be about 13 years. 13 years of, like, searching, and all of a sudden now he's before the highest man in Egypt, okay? And what we find in Scripture is that there is nothing at all that talks about what Joseph did about his feeling of forgottenness. It's total silence. It's almost like he just was like, he didn't even say anything to cupbearer. He didn't say anything. He just, hello, Pharaoh, I'm here. And he continued to do what he did. And I think it's important to notice that silence and to speak about it a bit. What do we do in moments where we feel forgotten or abandoned? I think the answer is remain faithful. Faithfulness isn't glamorous, guys. It doesn't need attention. You can't prove your faithfulness when things are going well. Because if, if God loves you and you're feeling that, and if he's really working in your life, then are you really being faithful to God or are you just responding because you feel good and you feel like you owe him something? No, faithfulness actually comes and is born out of a period where you don't have answers. Where you keep doing something and it doesn't work over and over again, but you keep showing up. That's what faithfulness is. I want to play you a clip um, that I heard recently, and I think that kind of shows a little picture of what faithfulness looks like. Kanan, will you play this clip for us? Okay, okay, play it one more time because it was so cool. Does anyone know what that is? No, it's not Darth Vader. Jeez. Great guess. All right, I'll tell you, just for sake of time. What you just heard is probably the most important scientific discovery in the world of physics in the last 200 years. What you just heard, right, was two black holes collide and crash into each other. And it created a gravitational wave that we heard from billions of light years away. That right there. What's unreal about this, okay, is that Einstein, in his research concerning the theory of relativity, now you're going to, I'm really a nerd, very typical Asian, very much a nerd. Um, 
But Einstein, when he talked about relativity, he said he believed. He didn't have any way of proving it. But he believed, unlike Newton and the popular people 200 years before since, who had thought that the universe was fixed and static, right? That there was a framework that didn't move. Einstein said, no, I think things collide into each other and they create these waves. And within these waves, light and time and space kind of stop or speed up and slow down. There's kind of this ebb and flow. And that's why we have gravity. That's what he thought. Now, what's unbelievable is that for 100 years, it was theoretical, right? It was just an idea that kind of people thought existed. But when they heard that noise, it all of a sudden became real. I was reading this article in the New York Times about this, and it said that, of course, everyone in the world of physics is super excited and people are freaking out. But there are three individuals in particular who are really, really excited. Kip Thorne is, um, is one of the names, Rainer West and Ronald Drever. These three guys gave their life to proving and creating the technology to capture this sound. Can you imagine that? Trying to capture a sound that may exist but may not exist, but betting your life's research on it? Showing up every day and being like, can you hear it yet? No. Can you hear it yet? No. I think we need to tweak something. Right? These guys are like, some of them are retired. They're in their 60s, 70s. Their whole life was dedicated to this, and they heard the sound. See, I think the journey of God is kind of like that sometimes. We're called to be people of faith, and having faithfulness means showing up and hoping and praying and waiting, even if you don't hear that sound. And then there are those moments, right, where you hear God, and he speaks into your circumstance. When we feel or think that we're forgotten, we respond by being faithful. And so just a quick overview In temptation, Joseph lived with great conviction. When his life was different from his dream, he made a choice to be present. And when he felt forgotten, he chose to be faithful. What's unbelievable is, what was the result of all of these things in Joseph's life? Well, the result is transformation. Joseph stands before Pharaoh, and he's a completely different person. Right? When Pharaoh says, hey, I've heard that you can interpret this dream and no one else can, Joseph doesn't boast. He doesn't brag. He doesn't tell him his dream. It says in Genesis 41, 16 that Joseph said, the interpretation is not in me, but God will give you a favorable answer. And when Joseph finally explains it, Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? You see, what God wants to do through your quest, your journey, your transformative experience is he wants to put his spirit inside of you. So that when people see you, they see him. Now, I know that some of you says, well, that sounds impossible, J.D. How are we supposed to do that? I think ultimately, all the stories we read in Scripture and all the people we encounter point us to Jesus. Because, see, Jesus lived a life without sin, even though he was tempted. He lived with great conviction. Jesus found himself on earth, away from his heavenly home, and all he knew, but he was so present with people, healing them, loving them ministering to them. And even at the cross, as he was going, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And when he felt forgotten, forsaken, he still stayed on that cross. He went to the cross and resurrected and because of that, we can have new life in him. And so my conclusion thought for you is simple. We were going to do a song, but we're out of time. I just want to, if you don't hear anything, I want you to hear this and then I'm going to dismiss you and pray for you. How do you become formed through your journey? How do you become formed on this quest? By having a relationship with Christ. That's how you do it. 
You're going to have moments when you feel tempted. You're going to have moments where you feel like, I don't understand why I'm going through this, and it makes no sense because you gave me this plan and it's not making sense. You're going to have moments where you feel forgotten. But if Christ is in your life, in the moments where you are tempted, he's going to give you strength to live your conviction. In the moments where you don't understand your circumstance, he's going to say, hey, I'm here with you, and I have a plan. Just trust me. Keep walking. Be present like I was. In the moments where you feel forgotten, he'll say, hey, I died and resurrected so that you would never feel alone again. We are called to be a people of faith. And as we discover our journeys, God promises, not that it will be easy, but that he will be with us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I thank you for this moment that we've had to gather in chapel, Lord, and I thank you for the beauty of your word. God, I give you praise for the journeys that are in this room. God, for the ways that you are molding men and women who are going to be your likeness all over the world. God, some people may not know you. Lord, I pray that they would hear you and experience a relationship with you. For those, Lord, who need that rekindle, I pray that you would bring that fire back into their life. God, in all the searching and all the seeking, may you be an ever-present Lord. As they go now from this place, Lord, I pray that you would keep them, help them to have courage and strength in their journeys to live with conviction. Oh, Lord, help them to not feel forgotten or abandoned and help them to be present in all that you're doing. We give you praise and glory and all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.